With that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on with the the current uh, reversal of the openings that ha- that have been happening, and now this this mandate that we're not allowed to sing in the church for now. And so, I just wanted to share a verse with you. Just give me a few minutes here, guys, and uh, we will get into our study. But I really wanted to speak to this. So, in Acts chapter one, verse four, Jesus was getting ready to ascend into heaven. He had risen from the grave, been seen by many of his believers. They have been given this great commission, and now he's telling them what he wants them to do when he goes away. Before they go out, they are to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the context here. So in verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So after all that the disciples had seen and heard, all that they had witnessed, they're still stuck on this one thing. See, they had been following Jesus because they believed that the Messiah, the one who was foretold, would come and he would be a political leader. And he was going to set things straight. And he was going to restore Israel to its former glory. And they wanted to be on the front end of that. And that's why they regularly argued, who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the guy that's going to get to sit next to Jesus on his throne? And they were always biding for that position. And still, here we are. Jesus is, has risen. He's getting ready to ascend to heaven, and they're still stuck on this. So now, is now the time that you're going to restore Israel? And Jesus says, man, you just don't get it. You still don't get it. He said, it's not, that's not your concern. You need to wait for power from on high so that you can be my witness here on earth, in Judea, Samaria, all around the world. That was the commission. That was the mission then. That remains the mission now, guys. We can get really sidetracked. We can get really caught up in a lot of what's going on around us and the political issues and social issues and all of these other things, to be sure. But the mission remains the same, guys. We are to be witnesses for Jesus. We are to receive power from God, and we are to be about gospel business as a church and individually. I don't want us to get distracted with all of what's going on out there in the world. You know, Christianity has become synonymous with a coalition of causes. That's what Christianity is. Now, pick a cause and fight for that right. But that's not what Christianity is, brothers and sisters. It never has been. And so, look, we have to recognize that things aren't going to get better. As a nation, I think things are going to get worse. I hate to say that, and please forgive me if this seems like some kind of doomsday thing, but look, the fabric of our society has changed, folks. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know this. And so politically speaking, things aren't going to get better, and we're not going to become a a moral society. It's just not going to happen. Things have changed, and you can't legislate morality. We can't make people be any kind of way. It's a matter of the heart. And so we want to be careful not to get caught up in all of what's going on around us as it pertains to the world and politics and and various things. As there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of uh, hatred going on out there. And so now I want to bring it in a little little more focused here regarding the pandemic. Guys, we've got to be honest and serious about the fact that we are in a pandemic. We just are. And, you know, things were looking good for a little while, but now they're blowing up all over again. And I know that there are many experts, self-proclaimed Google experts, who know all about what the statistics really are or are not, or how dangerous it is or is not, or or all of that. I, I get that. And I realize that what we're experiencing right now may be an overreach of the government into the church. It's possible. It could be that. And you could say that it's hypocritical because of the protesters who are allowed to assemble by the thousands. and all of the, You can say all of that. That's all very valid. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. 
We are on mission for Jesus. And the main thing is the main thing, and that is that we are to be about kingdom business and being disciple makers and worshiping Jesus, honoring Him. And the reality is, folks, we've been called by Jesus to submit to the governing authorities. We've been called to submit. You know, people will, will go so far with that, but here's the thing. If you always agree, if it's something that you agree with, then is it really submission? You know, submission is when you don't like it, when you don't necessarily agree with it, but you do it anyways. And we all are called to submit on some level. We all know what that means, whether it's, it's the, the wife to the husband or whether it's to the leadership in the church or to your employer uh, where you work or whether it is to, to God himself or students to teachers or in military to the, to the commanding officers. It is just a part of the world that we are in and no one escapes that. I come to realize this with um, a Christian uh, guy I worked for that at the end of the day he was at the top of the ladder, right? But guess who he had to submit to? His customers, oftentimes, if he wanted to stay in business. And so it's inescapable, guys. So I just want to remind us that we've been given a mandate to honor what the government asks of us. And this is serious. So what's important to me as a pastor is your guys' health, your well-being. That does matter to me. I take that very seriously. And so that's why I want us to take this very seriously and be willing to do the things that we might not necessarily like. We have to recognize that we are a part of Napa as a church and we have a responsibility to do our part. So I don't want to be a rabble-rouser. I don't want to fight this thing and stand up for my rights. I want us to do our part to honor Napa and to try to help this battle against this thing that is clearly picking up aggressively. There were 32 more cases on Friday. And so I don't, I don't say these things to try to f drive fear into the hearts of anybody, but... I just want us to, to get down to the basics here. This is serious. There are people that are getting sick all around us. There are people that are dying. And the government is stepping in and they're trying to do what they can to reverse this. And we want to do our part to help. And we want to esteem others as more important than ourselves. As Pastor Joe said, I don't even think that I could do any better than what he said at the beginning of the service. That was great. And so I want us just to have grace. I want us to have patience. I want us to have love and understanding and recognize that I'm seeking to lead pastorally here. I want to take into account what's best for everybody on a variety of levels. We're trying to lead with wisdom and scripture and counsel from other pastors as we make these decisions. And I say this because, look guys, I know there's a lot of different opinions right here in this church. And I'm learning the more that I get into social media that there is a galaxy of opinions out there and people are very eager to let me know what they are. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a no-win situation if I'm going based on people's opinions. Because if I do one thing, I can know I'll have support, but I can also know I'll have opposition. And the same is true if I go the other way. So please just understand, for me, guys, there is not a win situation. It's doing what I believe the Lord would have us to do to try to be as, as led by Scripture as I can be and to seek godly counsel from other pastors that I esteem as, as solid, mature, spiritual men. And so that's the way that we will proceed always. So just know that we don't like it. You know, nobody likes it. Um, but it's just the times that we are in. So, okay? All right. Love you guys. Just know that. All right. Well, let me pray and we'll get into our study. Hallelujah, Father. We love you. And it has been a it has been wonderful to come together as your people, to set our hearts upon you, to listen to the words, to consider the truth that Pastor Joe sang before us and to to be able to align our minds and our hearts with that. And Lord, to, to express in, in different postures our love and our need, our trust in You, our surrender to You. And so, Father, I thank You. I know that You are pleased. I know that You have been worshipped in this place. And I know that You will continue to be worshipped as we consider Your Scriptures together and what they say, what they mean, and how we can better obey your scriptures that is worship god 
And so be honored in this place, God. And by your Spirit, may I speak truth. And would you open our hearts and our eyes to receive it and to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hallelujah. Today we are uh, continuing our series on the vital signs, the vital signs of Calvary Napa. And so there are six of them. Last week we talked about called people follow, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you haven't heard that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. I know a number of people were challenged, encouraged, and I was convicted right in the middle of my sermon. You know, sometimes that happens. I'll be up here and I just got hit. And I almost lost my place for a second because my mind went, man, that is speaking to me. And so love it when that happens, you know. And so we want you to hear all of these messages. So today it is saved people serve. Saved people serve. And when you go on our website, what you will see under this icon is our God is a saving God. In so doing, He has redeemed us from the bondage of sin, and now we are free to serve in righteousness. Simply put, we have been saved to serve. Jesus Himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A servant is not greater than His Master, so if Jesus has served us in so great a way, we are compelled by His example and His love to serve one another. And so, saved people serve. And today, our study will uh, be centered on this. It's, it's who we are, it's what we do, it's why we do it in three little words. I like that. And so, um, you can follow along in your Bible if you'd like. I want to be moving through pretty quickly with the Scriptures. And so, um, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. So, the first point, point number one. Jesus said that true greatness is in being a servant. Jesus said that true greatness is in being a servant. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last, of all and servant of all. That is true greatness. As I said before, they argued amongst themselves because they wanted to be first in line when Jesus restored the kingdom. The disciples had ambition at the heart of their motives. Selfish ambition. I want to be the first. I want to be the greatest. But in God's economy, humble service is what is most impressive. You know, we look at people who are famous, who are powerful, who are wealthy, who are influential, and we say, man, that is impressive. You know, we revere those kinds of people. But do you think God thinks that's impressive? I mean, God has it all. He is powerful above all things. He has all resources at His disposal. His fame is unrivaled. So He doesn't look at someone down here and say, wow, that's pretty cool. No, what God says is, man, did you see how humble that person is? Did you see the way they served that other person sacrificially? Did you see the way they were not concerned about getting recognition or so on and so forth? That is impressive. See, that is what is impressive in God's economy. That is true greatness before the Lord. And Jesus embodied this reality in the most extraordinary way imaginable. Jesus embodied this reality for us. Which leads us to our second point. Jesus is the ultimate servant. Jesus is the ultimate servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there was strife in the church that Paul was writing to here amongst the Philippians. And there was a disunity that was happening. 
And so Paul spoke right to the issue. And he said, you've got to set your mind on Christ. You've got to look at what Jesus has done. You have to consider His example because He truly is the ultimate servant. And he says, have this mind among yourselves. And we can have this mind among ourselves. That of a humble servant. We should have this mind amongst ourselves. And he says, though he existed in the form of God, he took the form of a servant. That word form, it's used twice there. It's the same word. And it does not mean just the appearance of something. Sometimes when we talk about the form of something, it's what it may look like on the outside. But the inside may be altogether different, right? And so the Greek here, it's an outward expression that embodies the inner substance so that the outer form is in complete harmony with the inner essence. Same on the inside, same on the outside. What Jesus is outwardly, He is inwardly. There's no hypocrisy with Him in that. And so we see this in the ultimate condescension of Christ. When I say condescension, I mean the way that He stooped. The King of glory who was exalted in heaven lowered Himself. He stooped down. He took the place of a servant because that's who He is. He is the humble King. Everything about His life modeled that for us. He was not born in a palace. He wasn't raised in glory. He didn't even die surrounded by loved ones in a comfortable place. He died on a rugged tree being mocked and ridiculed and tortured, forsaken, abandoned, rejected. Couldn't go any lower than that. He stooped to the lowest place. And we see this in a very small way when He washed the disciples' feet. I say small, we don't even understand the magnitude of what really happened in that place. But the disciples, they were, they were assembled together in the upper room and we know that in Luke, guess what they had been talking about at the table? Guess. Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the greatest? What did Jesus do? He took the form of a servant. He got up quietly, he wrapped himself with a towel, he got a water basin, and he knelt down and he began to wash all their feet. That was the place of the lowest servant of the house, and Jesus took it. They certainly weren't going to take that place. And Jesus took that place, and then he washed their nasty feet one by one in love and in humility and in service to them. What that is, folks, is a willingness to do the thing that nobody else wants to do. A willingness to do the thing that nobody else wants to do. That is special to God. That is what Christ has done, and that's what we are called to do. I can think of a number of examples throughout my life where I've seen people in certain situations where an opportunity was given and everyone kind of stood silently, the crickets chirped, because nobody wanted to do it, right? We all know what that's like. You know, it's, it's interesting to me how, um, you, know, you know, the I don't even think it's a stereotype. I think it's for real. The mechanic, the guy who's a, a master mechanic, his car is breaking down. You know, you've heard the, the, the shoe cobbler's kids don't have shoes. The, the construction worker's house is in disarray. The very thing that a person does with their life and that they are a master at, their own home, their own life, it does not match that, right? And so often we have people in the church who are so gifted in particular areas, they've even given their life to it in a secular sense. And I don't mean to separate the secular from the sacred. I'll talk about that again. But they won't do it in the church. They won't do it for Jesus. They won't do it for Jesus' children. It's amazing to me. And so a willingness to do the very thing that no one seemingly wants to do, especially if that's the thing that we've given ourselves to do, but not willing to do it in the church. Well, point three, as disciples of Christ, it follows that we are servants. If Jesus said that true greatness is in being a servant, and if He modeled that for us in such an extraordinary way, if we say that we are followers of Christ, then that means that we are servants too. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. One be found faithful. 
And so here, Paul says, let us be considered servants of Christ. There are different words in the New Testament for the word servant in the Greek, but there's one word right here that's used only here, and it is an under rower, the person who is at the bottom of the ship pulling the oars. Maybe you've seen the movie Ben-Hur. That's what it, that's what it would be. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm at the bottom of the ship. It doesn't get any lower than this. I have no rights. It's not about me. And I am rowing for Christ, essentially. And so I think it's a healthy perspective to take upon ourselves when we recognize we're just under rowers. Amen? Servants for Jesus. Jesus is that. He has modeled that. And I think it's a helpful thing for us. You know, when I was uh, in Tennessee and I was coming up in ministry and my pastor, you know, came to me and said that he was going to raise me up and I was thrilled and I knew that it was probably too soon. But I thought, hey, man, this is awesome. Well, in the little bit of time that he had given that he was going to raise me up was enough time for him to see that I was not ready. And so it turned into year after year after year and... You know, there was another guy that came into the church and, uh, man, he was like, everybody was so excited and look at this guy and they were giving him all these opportunities and uh, it was um, a particular day that they were going to honor the pastor there and they asked him to do it. And he came to me and said, hey, man, I just wanted you to know they asked me to do this and I really felt like you should have been the one to do it and I'm, I'm sorry. And I said, look, man, I'm an I'm a under rower. You know, so what? I'm, I'm here to serve Christ. And so you got called on to do it. Do it, man, and do it well. And I think that kind of attitude is helpful for us as we recognize who we serve and who we are in Him. Well, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, But Jesus called them to Himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the world esteems authority and dominance as, as greatness. You look at someone who, who has that kind of power and authority, and people think that's great. You know, people aspire to that. But Jesus said that that greatness, true greatness, is found in service. Over and over he says this. Jesus said that he was among them as one who served. The word here for serve is diakonos, from which we get the word deacon, and it literally means to wait tables, to do the menial task. Now, as disciples of Jesus, that is to be our posture. Jesus came not to be waited on, but to wait on others. That was His posture. And I think that's something I want to, to really stick with you guys. It's a matter of posture. What is our posture? You know, when we talk about the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, literally the, the word there, it's, it's a, a leaning into, leaning towards to bless. It's a posture. And so in the same way, the posture of a servant is we are ready you know, when Jesus girded Himself with a towel, the idea there is that when you have a robe on and you have to, to lift your robe slightly so that you can move forward, so that you can advance for whatever reason might be necessary. And so it's a posture. It's being ready. It's having the heart, the mentality, and the willingness to step in and to serve. Recognizing that that's who we are. It's what Christ has made us to be. It's what our Lord is. It's what's pleasing to Him. It's what our Lord has done. And so it's having this posture. Jesus said that He did not come to be waited on, but to wait on others. But so much more than that, Jesus suffered the agonies of Calvary to buy us out of our bondage. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. He served us like that. He paid the highest price. He bought us out of bondage by suffering the agonies of Calvary's cross. There on that hill where our Savior died, He poured His life out to the death so that we could be purchased, so that we could be secured in Him. That's the level of service that Jesus did for us. Alright, point four. We are uniquely qualified to serve the Lord. 
So Jesus said that greatness is in being a servant. Jesus is the ultimate example of a servant. As disciples of Christ, it follows that we would be servants. And four, we are uniquely qualified to serve the Lord. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 says, But God be thanked, this is verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So we were slaves of sin. That was our condition outside of Christ. We were dead. We were rebels. We were separated from God and we were in slavery to sin. And there was no way out. We were owned by and under the control of a harsh taskmaster. That's what sin is, folks. And you know this. You know, it can be fun for a season, right? It doesn't start out all bad, does it? There's a reason why people give themselves to it. But what started out as fun and games becomes slavery and death. But you know, lest, lest we think that slavery to sin is just heroin, you know, uh, or meth or something like that so much more it's so much more than that you know it's it's envy it's envy you're compelled you're driven by you want what someone else has in fact you don't even want them to have it it's selfishness it's all about me living for me everybody exists for me everything revolves around me it's all for me and about me it's gossip gossip talking about other people, saying things that you know you shouldn't be saying, things you would be mortified if they found out that you said. You know, I, I, I've tried to have this policy that I don't want to say something about somebody unless they would be absolutely blessed if they were eavesdropping on me. And that's a great policy to have, you know, gossip, slander. You know, where I'm from in the, in the South, we say slanderizing. You know a good slanderizing. And I had a guy who wasn't from Tennessee come to me after a Bible study. He said, Rob, slanderizing is not a word. And I'm like, dang. And I can't stop saying it. And so you low down slanderizer. You know, lust. Lust. Pride. Self-righteousness. Arrogance. Dishonesty. Anger. All of these things we were slaves to. Slaves to it. But Christ set us free. We've been set free from serving sin to serve righteousness. We've been taken from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. He says, you know, you were free in regard to righteousness. It's like, what does that mean? Well, the idea there is that we were free to do what the heart most desired. And that's what it is. Freedom of inclination. Free to do what the heart most desired. Well, what our heart most desired was sin, was wickedness, was rebelliousness. And there was no fruit in that. He said, what fruit was there in that? It was rotten fruit, as I said last week. It's shame. It's regret. It's burned bridges and burned relationships and so much more. Yet, you have obeyed from the heart that teaching to which you were delivered. That is the gospel, folks. When you believe it and you obey it from the heart, when you give yourself to it, the heart is changed. The heart is reoriented. And now the thing that you most desire to do is to love God and to serve Him. The thing that our hearts most desired before was sin. But when you put your trust in Jesus and you believe on Him through the gospel, you are, your heart is made new. It's reoriented. And the thing that you most, now, most love now is, is God and, and worshiping Him and serving Him and blessing His people, living for Him. That's what the gospel does, folks. That's the good news of the gospel. Though we were in this condition, hopelessly and helplessly lost, Jesus paid the price so that we could be bought out of that slavery and He gave us a new heart. 
He gave us a new love. He gave us new passions, new aspirations, new priorities. He made us new in Him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? And that's the glory of the Gospel. And that's the only hope that there is. The heart will not change any other way. And so the person that has been set free wants to serve Jesus. Mark chapter 5, verse 18. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. And he departed and he began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So we know this story here. It's familiar to us. Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man. He had a legion of demons in him. And Jesus cast the demons out into the swine and then they ran off the cliff into the ocean and drowned. Well, the, the locals there said, get out of here to Jesus. They saw that, and for whatever reason, their response was, leave this place. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but this man wanted to come with Jesus. He had been set free, and he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, instead, I want you to go back home, and I want you to tell everybody how God has had mercy on you, what the Lord has done for you. And he did that. He obeyed it. He served the Lord. And you know what? Jesus came back to this place sometime later and there was a mass revival there. It was like they were waiting on Him. When He got there, thousands of people were there for Jesus. I think because this guy went and did what Jesus told him to do. Because they didn't want Jesus there. But after He went out in obedience to Jesus, when Jesus came back, surprise, thousands of people are there waiting for Him desperately. And so that is the heart of a person who's been set free from sin as we want to serve Jesus. Five, we are uniquely gifted to serve the Lord. So we have been uniquely qualified to serve the Lord, but we are uniquely gifted to serve the Lord as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it says that there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, uh, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So there are various gifts, various ministries, various activities. And I've talked about this many times over. If you are a believer in here, the Holy Spirit has given you something specifically to use. And that's amazing to me to think. Now, some people would say that there are particular gifts that we all must have. And that is simply not true. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives these gifts as He wills. The Spirit specifically and uniquely gifts individuals according to His sovereign will. And so just know, believer, that you have been given something special and unique to serve the Lord with. That's awesome, is it not? That is amazing to me. I'll never forget when I first kind of learned of these things and thought, I can serve the Lord. I can be used by God. My life that had been given to destruction and, and burning relationships and everything in between, I can now give back. Amen. You know, sign me up for that. And you know, this is, it's interesting, this is the opposite of what the Israelites experienced in their Egyptian bondage. They were under a harsh taskmaster. And we, we know that to be kind of a typology of, of sin and Satan. And they were underneath that burden. And you'll recall that he told them, you know what, now you have to go out and you have to get your own materials to build with. So not only was their, their uh, service already very harsh and cruel, but now they had to go out and get their own materials. Well, it, it couldn't be more different for the Lord. The Lord saves us. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. It is a delight to serve Him, and He gives us everything that we need. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness, and we have all the giftings that we need to serve Him well. That's amazing to me. That is amazing to me. All right, well, number six, our service is for one another individually. Our service is for one another individually. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 it says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So what Peter is trying to drive home here is that, look guys, we live in a time when we are in the end. We are in the end days. This is the, the, the end of the of, of history in a sense. God's creative and redemptive history. We are waiting for the Lord's return. And we need to live with a sense of urgency. And he said that we need to be self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful. That is to say, controlling our passions and our sinful tendencies. We are to be thinking clearly and to be watchful and to be urgent in our prayers. But then he says, above all, we are to keep loving one another earnestly. Loving one another earnestly. And this, you hear this phrase a lot. I've talked about it a lot. I will continue to do so. It's the one another commands. Commandments that are for us to be doing one to another. You know, sometimes ministry can just become, you've got the professional minister who stands on the stage and everyone else is just, they receive. But the reality is we are supposed to be ministering one to another. And the Scriptures give us so many ways in which to do this. So, the one another commands. We're going to start making this available to you. There are many of them. And so uh, we want to have resources so that you can see very clearly what all these commands are and the way that we're to be walking in these commands so that we are serving one another individually. The one another commands. We'll have that on the website. We'll have stuff available to you. But it's something that we need to take seriously all the more in the time that we're living in, guys. The time that we're living in, corporate gatherings are becoming more and more difficult. And so and if we go backwards, kind of into a shelter-in-place thing again, which I just wouldn't be surprised by, we really need to understand this one-another mindset, the one-another mentality of ministry. He says to show hospitality without grumbling. You know what that is? It's to do something kind for somebody and then complain about it. Do something good for somebody and then murmur about it. You know what the Greek word for murmur is, is murmur, murmur, murmur. I just made that up. But that's what it sounds like. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Okay? We're not to do that. Each has a gift and we're to serve one another with it. My gift is not for me. It's for you. Alright? Point number seven, our service is for the church corporately. So our service is for one another individually, but at the same time our service is for the church corporately. Romans chapter 12, verse 4. says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So we are individuals that make up the body as a whole. So, so we are many, but we are one. Right? We understand that? That is, that is the concept of the church of Jesus Christ. And then there are many local assemblies all over the world. And then there are Christians in heaven. I mean, there is the church universal, but then there is the church local. And we are a local body of believers. And Christ is the head. And so we, we honor Christ and we do His, His will, but we are to serve one another, one another and to love one another. And so... You know, we are members of one another. When one part hurts, the whole body hurts. I mean, do you think of yourself that way? Do you recognize that you are a part of the body, that we are members of one another? You know, you, you need to know if this is your church. We don't really do a formal membership here, but I expect you to know if you're a member of this church. And, and we need to know that and have that mindset, that mentality. This is my church. Jesus called me here. He has given me a gift that is to be employed here amongst these people for the benefit of this body. You need to own that, folks. You need to own that. Because as I've said before, if one part is not doing its, its job, then we all suffer on account of it. 
And it's by God's grace that we all have gifts that differ from person to person. And having these gifts, we need to use them for the good of the body overall. And so, point number eight, our service is to the Lord ultimately. Our service is to the Lord ultimately. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So what we do, uh, we do it as though we were doing it for the Lord. And so this is what I was saying earlier. We don't want to separate sake, uh, the, the secular from the sacred. What you do for a living, whatever it is that God has allowed you to do for a living, that is service to the Lord. Day by day, whatever task you step to, you're doing that like you're doing it for Jesus. And you know, I used to get convicted by this. I worked in, in different uh, fields where we would do production work and we would produce a product and there were certain specifications and, and quality control measures in place, but you could also, you know, cut corners at times. But I would think, man, if I'm building this thing for Jesus, I mean, imagine that. What you are doing on a daily basis, if you, if you were personally doing that for Jesus, how would that uh, dictate the way that you, you did what you did? I mean, you would do it to the best of your ability. You would not cut any corners. You would want to give Jesus the best that you could possibly give Him. And that's the way that we are to do life. We are to recognize that whatever we do, we're doing it for the Lord. It is ultimately Him that we serve. And again, this is kingdom perspective here. It is ultimately Jesus that we serve in all that we do. And it is from Him ultimately that we will be rewarded. So we do what we do for Him, and we know that from Him, ultimately, we will receive a reward. And so we want to do it with the right attitude. We don't want to complain. We don't want to murmur. We want to do it with diligence. We want to do it to the best of our ability, with everything we got. And we want to do it with the right motives. We want to do it because we want to be pleasing to Jesus, because we want to honor His name, because we want to bless other people. We don't want to do it to be seen or to get accolades or whatever the case may be. All right, number nine. This is our last one. There is a need for a ministry mind shift in our service. The need for a ministry mind shift in our service. I think that there is a lot more to it than we realize when it comes to our service to the Lord. And I think the best way to illustrate this, guys, is with the term the trellis and the vine. I've told you about this book I've gone through it with a number of men. Um, it is an amazing book. And I have, from the pulpit, encouraged you to get a copy. And I'm, I don't know how many of you did, but I want to remind you again, the trellis and the vine. Now, in some ways, this is, I think, uh, for pastors more than anybody. And the idea is for the pastor to begin to try to help the congregation see through this lens. Uh, but this is a spectacular book on discipleship, Disciples Making Disciples. I'm going to read an excerpt to you in just a moment from this book. But I want to say there's the trellis work of the church and then there's the vine work of the church. And what I mean is there is structure, there is a need for the trellis upon which the vine hangs. And so we have ministries, we have different things set in place so that things can run smoothly and efficiently and so there's nothing that is missed, everything is covered and that is necessary. You know, some people have built a beautiful trellis. I mean, that thing is nice. But you know what? There's not a vine hanging on it. And so that can be an issue. And the vine represents the people. It represents people work. And there really should be both. You have some churches, they have no trellis. They're, all, they're just a hippie church. You know, we just, you know, whatever. We're just floating through and it's going to happen and then you have some people that are overly structural and overly administrative, and it's all to the neglect of the people. Well, we want to have both. And so it's necessary that we have trellis work here and that there are opportunities for people to serve in various ministries that are necessary for, for us to gather the way that we do and to have the different things that we need in the church, all the way from cleaning to ushering to children's ministry to sound to worship to hospitality 
on and on and on it goes. There's plenty of that. And that is all good. That is all necessary. We always have needs there. And I'm always urging you to step forward and to step into those things. But there's also the vine work, the people work. And so this is disciples making disciples. This is another uh, very real and necessary realm where we need to fit into, and I think we don't in a lot of ways. We do not see ourselves as disciples. We do not see ourselves as commissioned to make disciples and to speak into other people's lives. Well, we're on a mission, folks. We are disciples making disciples, and we've got to get in the game. And so I had thought about this before, before I read this particular portion. And so when I read this, it really spoke. Man, it kind of really caught my attention because I thought through this because, you know, oftentimes I am pushing for, for different ministries that need to be filled, so on and so forth. But then this particular scenario popped into my mind. So I just want to read this to you and then close with one verse. So it says, Let us try to illustrate what these mind shifts mean and practice with just one nitty-gritty example. Imagine a reasonably solid Christian said to you after church one Sunday morning, Look, I'd like to get more involved here and make a contribution, but I just feel like there's nothing for me to do. Have you ever thought that before? I'm not on the inside. I don't get asked to be on committees or lead Bible studies. What can I do? Or you may say, well, I see things around here, but that's not my gift. What would you immediately think or say? Would you start thinking of some event or program about to start that they could help with, some job that needed doing, some ministry that they could join or support? I would add to that, would you start thinking of brand new ministries that could be created just so someone would have a place to fit? This is how we are used to thinking about the involvement of church members in congregational life in terms of jobs and roles. Usher, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, treasurer, elder, musician, song leader, money counter, and so on. The implication of this way of thinking for con congregation members is clear. If all the jobs and roles are taken, then there's really nothing for me to do in this church. I'm reduced to being a passenger. I'll just wait until I'm asked to do something. The implication for the pastoral staff is similar. Getting people involved and active means finding a job for them to do. In fact, the church growth gurus say that giving someone a job to do within the first six months of their joining your church is vital for them to feel like they belong. However, if the real work of God is people work, the prayerful speaking of His Word by one person to another, then the jobs are never all taken. The opportunities for Christians to minister personally to others are limitless. So you could pause and reply to your friend, See that guy sitting over there on his own? That's Julie's husband. He's on the fringe of things here. In fact, I'm not really sure whether he's crossed the line yet and become a Christian. How about I introduce you to him and you arrange to have breakfast with him every other week and read the Bible together? Or see that couple over there? They are both fairly recently converted and really in need of encouragement and mentoring. Why, do you not, uh, why don't you and your wife have them over, get to know them, and read and pray once, uh, together once a month? If you still have time and want to contribute some more, start praying for the people on your street and then invite them all to a barbecue at your place. That's the first step towards talking with them about the gospel or inviting them along to something. Now, of course, there's every chance that the person will then say, but I don't know how to do these things. I'm not sure I'd know what to say or where to start. To which you reply, oh, that's okay. Let's start meeting together and I can train you. And that's what it's about, folks. Ephesians chapter 4 says that the pastors exist to train the members of the body to do this kind of ministry. That's what we want to see happening. That's what we want to help you do. And if that is your mindset, the possibilities are endless. Endless. For everyone in this room and so many people outside of this room and our families, different circles, workplace, you name it, have very real needs. And God has called us to try to get into those people's lives, into each other's lives, and try to be a positive influence for Christ and for the gospel. That's what we want to see happening here. And that's what we want to help you to do. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 says, "...till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the sons of God, to a perfect man, that is, to a complete person, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we should no longer be children 
tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking truth and love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So there you have it, folks. That's the, the objective of the church. We are growing. We are seeking to grow into Christ to be mature. We're not tossed to and fro. We're not blown away by every wind of doctrine, but we are seeking to grow up into Him who is the head, and every part must do its share of the body working together so that it may grow up in love. And so that's, that's the objective, folks. We are servants. We are saved to serve. And we serve in many different capacities. We serve in our homes, in our workplace, in the community, in the church. And we are to do the necessary work of the trellis, but we are also to do the crucially necessary work of vine work. We are to be in each other's lives, making a difference, making disciples. Have you ever made a disciple before? Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for 20, 30 years, 40 years, sitting under world-class Bible teaching. Have you made a disciple? You know, I talked about the posture of a servant, right? Ready to serve, ready to, to lean it in. You just can't wait for an opportunity. This is the posture of us many times. Feed me. Feed me. I need more. I'm not getting fed enough. Meanwhile, you haven't made a disciple. And so we got to get in the game, folks. Let's pray. Let's pray. Pray that God would give us this heart. Pray that God would give us boldness. Pray that God would give you an opportunity, that He would give you clarity on who's somebody that you can tap their shoulder and say, hey, I would love to get together with you. I would love to read the Bible together or whatever it may be. Or maybe you feel like you need training. You need help. You need some practical steps on how to do this. We're here for you. We want to do that. And so again, Pastor Aaron's going to be outside at the table with the umbrella, and that's also why he's there. We want to be able to get you guys in the game, get you plugged in, get you trained, and if you desire to do that, then just stop by the table and he will get your name and info and we will start working with you on that. Amen? Here at Calvary Napa, we are servants. Saved people serve. Amen? Let me pray and we'll close. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, that you have saved us so that we could serve you. We've been redeemed, God. We've been forgiven. And it's the cry of our heart, God, to give you our lives, to give you our hearts, to give you our hands, and to give ourselves to one another in gospel service. So please help us to do that, Father. Help us to overcome fear. Help us to overcome this notion that we don't know what to do or how to do it. Lord, may we, may we take every opportunity, God, to learn how to do it and then to get in the game, to have lives that are truly being used by you, lives that are truly doing, Jesus, what is in your heart for your church to do. May we be that for you, Lord. We're here for you, Jesus. Lead us. You are the head of the church. Use us. Empower us. God, would your spirit, may your spirit fall upon this church here and now. May your spirit baptize us afresh. And may you give us a passion and a power, Lord, to serve you for the furtherance of your kingdom here in Napa and all around the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.